without punishment and punishment without crime. This is perhaps the best expression of the Russian feeling of impunity, which might be one of the deep psychological causes of this war. How should we understand it and can we end this impunity? You're listening to the Explaining Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is a Ukrainian scholar and journalist uh, in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend the majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Tanya, let's discuss it because this is probably one of the most important cultural question, the question of justice. And uh, one of the interpretations of this war is that Russians really have this feeling of impunity and they're just taking the pleasure of attacking Ukraine, thinking that Ukraine will not be able to respond. But let's start with the not cultural uh, topic, but with a military one. Uh, An interesting article was published uh, a few days ago written by two persons. One is the chief Ukrainian commander, Valery Zaluzhny, the, the man who is now, a, I would say, a heroic figure, very popular in Ukraine and who is leading the Ukrainian army. Another person is Mr. Zabrotsky, who is a member of parliament, uh, by the way, from the opposition Poroshenko bloc, uh, the European Solidarity bloc, but who is also a military and a general. And the article focuses on uh, the strategy of the war in 2023. So this is a kind of a forecast, what will happen in 2023. But the conclusions of this article are not only the military one, but interestingly, psychological or cultural ones. Do you agree? Yes, exactly. So it's a brilliant article. It's worth reading for in many languages, and I do hope that our colleagues will translate it in in English, in French, and German, because it's a really an intelligent piece on what not only what's going on in this war, but also about the relationship between between Russia and Ukraine and the rest of the world. So. Um, uh, to make to put it brief, uh, there are two major things um, the authors are discussing. First of all, they are not talking only about um, that Ukraine should liberate its territories. They st- they start stating that the center of gravity of this war is Crimea. So that the Russia started this war and defended uh, Crimea, and for for Russia this is extremely important to 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 keep Crimea, but. Interestingly enough, uh, even if Ukraine liberates Crimea, not talking about South and Kharkiv or region, all that all the status will come back to um, to Ukraine. This will not end the war. This may be the major point because to end the war, we uh, we have to 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 reach a kind of symmetry between forces, between capacities. They are uh, using this uh, this expression of capacities, military capacities of Russia and Ukraine, and they state that Russia 
Russia's action, it is uh, supported by this feeling of impunity, which was there from the very beginning. Impunity when, for example, they have missiles which are able to reach um, um, objectives in 2,000 kilometers. And Ukraine, we have uh, missiles or uh, systems, artillery systems, which are able to reach in, in 100 kilometers. So it's 20 times less capacity. And this will uh, continue because even if Ukraine liberates Crimea, they will put their ships and their systems uh, somewhere in Russia and they will still be able to continue this uh, uh, unjust war. And this is a kind of a feeling, uh, Russian, maybe, maybe Russian mentality, they feel strong and they feel able to do what, whatever they want and they do so because their uh, counterpart is weaker and we understand that Russia started the war again against a country which was much weaker in terms of military equipment in terms of populations let's not forget that in Russia they are three, three times more population than we have in Ukraine so Ukraine is a smaller country and that, that they will continue to do so if they don't receive a symmetric response each time they hit a target somewhere in Western Ukraine. So this article is not only about, look, we are to liberate all our territories. This article is about a balance, balance in capacities, uh, in terms of uh, weapons, for sure. Let's not forget that this article was published on Wednesday, just a day before a meeting in Rammstein, uh, Rammstein format where uh, ministers of defense of many countries were present to discuss military aid to Ukraine. So it, it could, you, could, you can read this article as an appeal for Ukrainian, uh, for Euro European leaders to, to support Ukraine military. But at the same time, um, the goal of this war is not only to liberate Donetsk, Lugansk and Crimea, but to restore the balance to restore justice and the, to, to reinforce Ukrainian capacity. Without that, there will be war for many years and maybe decades. Yeah, that's uh, what re what uh, strikes me in this article is uh, how the Ukrainian chief commander, of course, well, I mean, we can presume that uh, Mr. Zabronsky was uh, maybe the key author or maybe they were helped by some other colleagues, but the level of thinking of a person who is, uh, you know, seeking solutions for daily problems on the front line for already six months and uh, doing, doing this successfully, but the level of thinking, the, the level of conceptualization is enormous. Like they're, they're quoting Clausewitz. They're, they're really using the terminology which for us, the people in humanities, philosophers, as we are, uh, also is remarkably interesting, remarkably strong, like this, what you mentioned, the center of gravity. The very concept is very interesting, right? And they're actually saying that the center of gravity of this war is not a territory, is something else, uh, else. And when they're saying that the center of gravity of this war is the feeling of impunity, that means that uh, the center of gravity of this war is not territorial, material, not even geopolitical, but deeply psychological or even psychoanalytical. Uh, because that means that Russians want to stress their impunity or assert 
themselves in this impunity. Impunity means that we are doing something and there will be nothing for this, no justice for this. That's, so, so... That's exactly why they started the war. Let's come back to the months which preceded the war and let's see that they were posing kind of ultimatums for the West, stating that you are to get out from from that and that country. You are not to encourage Ukraine on its its European way towards NATO, for example, Europe, uh, European and Euro-Atlantic integration. So you are to do that and that, and that, then that, then it will be a peace. So it was a kind of a communication from a from what they believe to be a strong position stating that we are able to do something but you will not be able to respond. When, for example, they were um, using these rhetorics of nuclear uh, nuclear uh, challenges in the I don't remember, maybe sort of fourth day of the war, they started already that, and they were used that the rhetorics many times during the six months. They were saying that we are ready to do that and you are not ready to respond. So we will be, it's, it's also about impunity. So they are trying to persuade. This something is surrealistic in that because they don't have this strength they are declaring to, declaring to have. But they are trying to make people fear, to, to make people panic, to make uh, everybody sure that they will not be able to respond to, to this strength. And this is typical Russian um behavior, I would say. And this article of um, Zaluzhny and his co-author was talking about the necessity to stop that. And you mentioned the balance. The balance is a very important concept, as we know, in uh, in uh, the geopolitics, right? So the, the famous concept of the balance of power, which drives from the uh, mid-17th century, from the Westphalia system. And as we know, there are there are two approaches to world order. Either you have the overarching international system, kind of which uh, which brings justice, or you you deny the possibility of the existence of this international system, and you just make a system of balance of power when each particular player or combination of players balance each other. So when uh, Zaluzhny and Zabrotsky talk about the need to restore balance. Uh, they actually means that uh, Ukraine should be part of the Western part of this balance of power. And uh, the West, uh, the United States, NATO, of course, they have perfect balance to match these Russian capacities. Primarily, they are talking about the long-range artillery system or long-range missile systems. And this is the key in terms of military. So in order to stop Russia, we we should have also 2,000 kilometers missiles able to target uh, to be a symmetric response to uh, Russians because Russians can shell all of the Ukrainian territory and the Ukrainians are trying sometimes to reach borderlands of Russia or or Crimea. So this is this is the military point of view. Yeah, this is a military point of view, and uh, by the examples used in this article, we could, one could judge that uh, Zaluzhny is talking about a military response, about long-scale uh, missiles which are able to hit targets at uh, thousands of kilometers. But at the same time, what he's not talking about, but uh, we already discussed that many times, at least here in Ukraine, about the capacities of any 
any European country to face this Russian aggression if it's not uh, part of NATO, for example. It's impossible to, to, to make war with Russia if, if you are not a, a part of this uh, collective, uh, collective defense system. So um, politically or geopolitically, uh, we can say that uh, what Zaluzhny doesn't say, but uh, it's clear that uh, for, for Ukraine, in order to restore this balance, Ukraine should be a part of a system of a collective defense. Otherwise, there will be never, never such a balance. So this is important. Uh, Zaluzhny is talking about mostly about military things, but we can make a conclusion that without that, there will be no end of this war. And um, let's maybe talk about this uh, impunity and about impunity in, in more broad, maybe cultural. And uh, So th- that's what I wanted to ask you, because uh, to, in 2014, you were the author of this phrase, crime without punishment and punishment without the crime, which is kind of a, also leitmotif of maybe Russian uh, Russian culture, not only the political culture. You refer to certain, of course, uh, the line uh, starting with Dostoevsky with his crime and punishment, which here we Ukrainian intellectuals rather interpret as the breaking the link between crime and punishment. But you also mentioned a few other Russian writers who were kind of uh, uh, developing this topic. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, yes, indeed. When we look at uh, what this classic Russian literature, we'll easily find this uh, this famous uh, famous book of Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment. But what surprised me when I was reading this uh, this book uh, during my research, linked to other authors, is that in fact, when you read the, the story of Raskolnikov, who is killing this old lady, two uh, old ladies, two, two old ladies, uh, just to prove that he is not a, uh, his his um, that he has the right to do so uh, uh, it's not about and and this is a very very detailed description of the crime and of the psychological justifications why uh, a crime should be possible for for Skolnikov. but if you read through the book and you just read it till the end and you will see that there is no real punishment in that in this story. This is a kind of a promise of punishment later, but somewhere a punishment that a reader can imagine. Maybe it will take in time, so you just imagine the punishment, but no real detail, detailed description of that. And this absence of balance, once again, so this word of balance between crime and punishment gives me an idea of thinking that in Russian culture, we have a kind of a um, broken link between between reasons and consequences, you know, between crime and punishment. And this is a kind of uh, an idea which uh, is um, always present in Russian culture, this cult of force, of aggression, sometimes in, in motivated aggression as well. Mm, it's not only about Dostoevsky for sure, but about the culture of 20th century. And now what we see in numerous reports coming from, from Russia about this aggression, about this uh, uh, violence, which is um, what we see in the interceptions, for example, of the Ukrainian security service as well. So this kind of a cult of, uh, of violence and aggression is, is a name of, in itself. There, and, is, there is one more thing, I think. 
what, what is the problem in Dostoevsky? Dostoevsky actually was responding to a, a big European problem of the time. And this big European problem was, uh, of course, raised by his predecessors and uh, writers that he translated, primarily the French writers, Balzac and uh, Victor Hugo primarily. And uh, the big reflection which Dostoevsky uh, himself accepts, the big topic of these novels was uh, how to make a punishment of a criminal into a big transformative tool of a human being. So how, uh, after a crime, a human being can redempt uh, this crime and and become better and kind of a be reborn? That's that's a story which which really is at the core of the uh, French, primarily French literature of the uh, the first uh, the first uh, part of the nineteenth century. What Dostoevsky does, he uh, he declines the possibility of the law to regulate the situation of, 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 of a crime. Basically, he says that the law, the state institutions are just incapable of providing the adequate uh, response. The only response which, which can be done is the response by religion and by, by some uh, psychological, deep psychological analysis, uh, uh, by conscience, by love, but not by institutions. And, and here, I think we are in a very, very important issue is that there is a big, deep mistrust to law in the Russian culture. Law meaning the institutionalized justice. And why there is a big mistrust to the law? Uh, for different reasons, for various reasons, which, which can probably we can discuss a little bit in, in one of our next podcasts because it's it's very, very difficult, very interesting topic. But I think that here... During this war, we are facing an absolutely different visions of the world from the West and from Russia. The West, in the uh, the post aftermath of the Second World War, the key reflection in the West was how to invent the law which would limit the wars and which would limit the war crimes. Uh, if the wars are uh, inevitable, how we can make the wars humane? So how to make a law that would limit the wars, uh, the the violence? Russian reflection is totally different. It is different in, for example, in the reflection of Eurasians, Mr. Dugin and others of key Russian geopoliticians. They reflect how, what should we do to limit the law? Not how, what should we do to invent the law to limit violence, but what violence should we use to limit the law, to break the rules, to impose other rules? And I think this is the most important thing in all that. Yeah, yeah, but let, let, let's not not uh, let's not exaggerate the Dostoevsky here because it's just an example, and we can easily find examples of such a reflection on on um, aggression on and on crime in European literature as well. Uh, but the the problem you are pointing out is extremely important. It's it's about the uh, absence of balance between and, and about 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 no rules. So this not uh, Russian culture is talking about the absence of rules for for such people like Raskolnikov, and uh, his slogan is "I have the right, I have the right to kill." So it means that somebody who is out of the out of the law, and there is no solution, no. And the legal... right, the right is given not by the law, not by institutions, but by his act of murder. 
Yeah, but he, his mystical, mystical idea and his act of murder, and he's becoming somebody, uh, I don't know, Napoleonic, somebody, somebody uh, str- uh, strong enough just because of this murder. And um, when I was talking about the link which is broken between crime and punishment, and you um, rightly uh, highlighted the absence of institutions and law inside, we can see an opposite uh, example in Russian literature. For example, if we look at the 20th century, we can find uh, an author called Daniel Harms, which was a subject of my scholar interest for several years, uh, some decades ago. And in Harms, you find an extremely interesting story, which is called Old Lady. This is the last story Harms wrote um, in '39 because he, he died soon after. And this is a story which is a kind of a replique to Dostoevsky. He describes a story when an old lady enters uh, enters a room of a narrator and she dies all by herself. And then the reader can easily guess it is another story based on Dostoevsky because everything looks like in Dostoevsky, but the problem is that this narrator, he didn't kill her. And he, he's trying to get rid of her body. He's feeling guilty, guilty all the time. He's having uh, terrific, uh, terrible dreams. He's trying to escape the city. He uh, put uh, takes his body and he took, uh, takes a train to go out of the city to hide the body, etc., etc. But this is a story which, which was uh, formulated by uh, Jean Philippe Jacquard many years ago in his article uh, specifically in the based on the comparison between Dostoevsky and Harms it's about the punishment without crime punishment so this narrator this uh, person he's he's punished by this death but without committing any kind of crime and this is a metaphor of what Russia was going and Soviet Union was going through in the 20s and 30s about the big terror about uh, millions of people which were guilty without committing any kind of crime we do remember all that and this is a kind of a mirror mirror situation of what Dostoevsky suggested so but once again in this episode absurd text of harms and the absurdity of these years and big of big big terror still the same thing the link between crime and punishment is broken so in uh, 19th century you commit a crime and you get no proper punishment in a totalitarian society you commit no crime but you are punished Exactly. And uh, let's turn to authors who were actually constructing this horrible Stalinist regime. Uh, one of them was Ida Averbach, who was a who wrote a, a text which is called uh, Crime and Labor. And uh, this is obviously a reference to Dostoevsky. Ida Averbach was an educated person and she was the wife of... Uh, uh, of uh, of one NKVD directors, I think it was um, it was uh, well, I, I forget the name. Uh, so uh, she was involved into all, into all this. She was one of the persons uh, who were constructing this idea of gulags, and the idea of gulags was precisely you know coming initially from these, you know, maybe decent ideas of the 19th century how to reform the prisons in order to uh, remake, transform people. 
but as any decent idea coming to this geography, uh, to this uh, Russian imperial geography, it turns into some horrible things. And uh, they used, for example, a term Perekovka. Perekovka means reforging. So as if the, 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 the human souls and bodies were a kind of piece of steel that you need to reforge in these gulags. So this actually explains the horrible things about gulags. Let's, let's not forget that gulag was much earlier than uh, Nazi gas chambers and uh, the horrible, in a way that Nazis probably uh, had a lesson from the Soviet Union, from the Stalinism, how to make the, 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 the killing, the murder of the mass amount of people possible. This already happened in the Soviet Union in the 30s. And uh, one other personality is Mr. Vyshinsky, who was a general prosecutor of the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin's friend. And I remember his treaties in the 1942 here is written uh, during the Second World War. When he, uh, one of these treaties, uh, he discusses the concept of truth in justice, in Soviet justice. And he invents the concept of dialectical truth, obviously using this Marxist vocabulary. And this dialectical truth actually meant that you don't need to verify the empirical facts when you, when you see a person, for example, who has some background either from the peasants or the, from the bourgeois. In, you just establish a dialectical truth that this person is an enemy of the people. And whether he's done something, a crime or not, it doesn't matter. He deserves a punishment. Punishment without a crime. So it's it's really inside this this very specific culture, and I think we should really uh, thanks to you, uh, Tanya, we should we should really really think about these two concepts together: crime without punishment, punishment without crime. They always come together, and they actually derive from this, as you said, breaking the connection between. Uh, uh, between between two two points of justice, right? The the crime and the response to this crime. Yes, exactly. And another idea uh, we, we might discuss uh, shortly now, uh, I think that this is also linked to the idea of subjectivity. So when we look at this Raskolnikov, who is trying to get to become somebody, to become the great, so it's about becoming a subject, you know, becoming somebody. And it's interesting enough to know that in Russian culture, in order to become somebody, you need to be violent, to, to go to transgress what they call, uh, what French call transgress. Transgression, transgression of any rules, transgression of any laws, of system, of law, of institutions, etc., etc. So, a kind of a mystical idea of the breakthrough, the system, etc. And on the other side, uh, we see these uh, people who are punished without committing any kind of crime. They are not people. They are. Uh, they are in a totalitarian uh, system. They are considered to be uh, un under humans. Uh, somebody who who is not subject, who is, has no free will, who has no no capacity to to leave, no capacity to decide, etc., etc. So this is a kind of a, a thing which is, which is proper to Russian cultures. In order to become somebody subject, you you need to be uh, um, violent. And, and strong. Exactly. Yeah. This is this is all about Raskolnikov. In order to get a right, uh, 
his famous phrase either they are I I don't know how to translate Trying it yeah am I a kind of a some very nasty creature uh, from from the below world or trembling yeah creature or do I have a right so in order to have a right you need to be a superhuman Humans do not have rights in this ideology. Only superhumans have rights. And in order to become a superhuman, you, you need to kill. That's that's really a problem. Another thing, another classical literature, novel literature piece I would like to mention, uh, this is a piece of an author which is widely discussed here now in Ukraine, which is who is from Kiev, who is called Mikhail Bulgakov. And uh, there is a big debate right now in, in Ukraine because... On the one hand, Bulgakov is a really talented writer. Uh, don't know whether he can be called a great writer, but really, really talented writer. On the other hand, uh, of course, I mean, he was kind of very chauvinistic, Russian chauvinistic, not only with regard to, to Ukraine and uh, the, the national liberation process which he witnessed here in Kyiv, but also with regards to Caucasus, for example. This is also... Two two painting points for Russian for, well, let's call it Russian literature, great Russian literature, great with irony maybe, uh, because we need to be very critical of it. I think that uh, the two points of of whether on which it should be always checked its its relations to on the one hand Ukraine and Belarus, and on the other hand to Caucasus, and maybe on the third hand to the Central Asia. So. Um, Bulgaka was quite chauvinistic to Ukraine and to the Caucasus, but um, but let's remember his novel Master and Margarita. Who is doing justice in this novel? The devil. The Volant and his friends is the only force that is able to do the justice. So while in Goethe, the Mephistopheles, and it's of course a replica of Goethe. Mephistopheles doesn't care about justice. Mephistopheles, as we remember from Goethe, is a force that wants evil but makes but does the good. Uh, Bulgakov uh, doesn't care about the evil and good. He, he he really cares about justice. So and it's it's also about resentment because uh, Voland actually punishes all those who are not pleasant for for the author, and who also of course. I mean, we can understand that these are bad people, etc. But it seems that the evil is the only force in this world which is able to do justice. There are some discussions that maybe Voland is Stalin. Uh, we don't know. Both are demonic creatures. Both in in that Stalinist period were the only forces who would do some uh, some some things to to punish. Who would do punishment? But the problem of Master Margarita is that this punishment is very easily associated by Bulgakov with justice. And, uh, and the thesis is that justice is done by evil, not by good. Not by the God who is weak, but by the devil who is omnipotent. And I think this is also very, very dangerous, right? So this attitude to justice, which is another, another synonym, synonym of force of of uh, of uh, and of violence
Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly about uh, Bulgaria, which is widely discussed uh, today. And uh, if we switch to what's going on today, I was impressed a couple of days ago when we read in a, in one of the Russian publics, I don't remember the also exactly, he was stating that, look what Ukrainians do at that very moment. They will put on the question, they will undermine our notion of our superiority of the Russian people over Ukrainians. So for them, this um, um, this right to use f- force to violence against others, it is linked to their the idea of superiority of the Russian nations. I was really impressed to read that because it it was everything was said in this phrase, and it was also about this what Valery Zaluzhny was talking in about in his article. Yeah, so you see that uh, in this world there are also very much culture, psychology, psychoanalysis also uh, involved. And it is very important to understand this world not only from the geopolitical point of view, but also from this cultural and psychological point of view. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova. We are both uh, educated in humanities, in philosophy and literature, uh, but also work for media organizations, Internet Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend uh, your support right now, your donations to help Ukrainian defenders on the front line and to help people affected by this war. Uh, follow us, stay with us and stay with Ukraine. Thank you.